Welcome to AI Unboxed, your portal to the pulsing heart of innovation. I'm Andrew Monnier, and together, we're stepping beyond the digital frontier to explore the wonders and intricacies of artificial intelligence. Each episode is an invitation to thinkers, doers, and dreamers, pushing the envelope and redefining the possible. So settle in and let's embark on this journey. This is AI Unboxed, where your untapped potential meets the minds that dare to unlock it. Welcome to another episode of AI Unboxed. Today's guest is Hillary Coover. Now, Hillary is an accomplished growth executive in the national security technology sector. She has success in sourcing and executing strategic technology, as well as business partnerships for software and services companies within the $4 million to $400 million range. With a proven track record and deep relationships in the national security community, she has captured and designed innovative technology solutions for federal customers and led many technology integrations, OEM agreements, complex implementation projects, and team. Now, given her extensive background as a business development professional for government contractors, she conducts workshops training staff on the responsible adoption and use of AI tools for government proposals and capture efforts. Additionally, she designs and implements guidelines for AI usage that prioritize safety and security for government contractors. Now, if that wasn't enough, she is also a host with the podcast It's 505 and gives audio updates on cybersecurity and open source news. Wow. So, so great to have you here, Hillary. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and to chat about my favorite topic of the day, AI. Awesome. Well, could you briefly, I know I, I, I did a bit of an introduction, but in your own words, could you briefly introduce yourself and your area of AI knowledge? Anything that maybe I missed? I got my MBA and I focused on data analytics a few years ago. This was before you could uh, learn how to code through chat GPT. So I learned how to leverage Python and some other um, data analysis languages and tools during my MBA. Um, and that kind of propelled me into the national security technology space um, away from the professional services areas and and got me into the product space. And I, I got, as a business development executive, I wanted to better understand the types of tools that um, and services that I, our products were providing to our customers. And um, while I, I, my area of expertise um, begins with the understanding of the national security stakeholders and their problem sets, and then also my understanding of government contractors and their relationships with those stakeholders. In And so the biggest gap that I saw earlier this year uh, was government contractors coming out and, you know, saying, everybody stop, nobody use ChatGPT, it's banned, uh, except nobody... <laughs> It, it didn't. I, it didn't seem to work. I think there were several surveys that went out that showed anywhere from fifty to seventy-five percent of employees of government contractors were actually using it just on their personal devices. And so that that disconnect between, um, you know, the, the it, embracing new technology coming out and trying to ban it, it, it was pretty incredible. So I came in um, to a couple of firms earlier this year to say. Hey, let me do a workshop and and show your employees how how LLMs work and how to use new generative AI technology 
um, in the context of dealing with often sensitive proposal information um, and and how to how to create governance policies around the adoption of those technologies and not just throw blanket bans that nobody's going to listen to. And so it changes every week. And so I find myself following up even just, I think, three days after I gave that workshop, I said, hey, guess what? This totally changed everyone. Just so you know, <laughs> stay up to date on X, Y, and Z. And it's, it's, it's an incredibly uh, rewarding, fast-paced technology to stay on top of. And over the last year, getting to know all the best resources and tools to be able to leverage it, maximize its you know, value ha- has been really, uh, really fun. Well, I'd like to dig into one of the things you just said a little bit further. You said that the government came out and said, no, don't, don't, don't touch this. Why, why do you think they were so like, so like, no, don't touch? Not the government, um, government, a lot of government contracting companies, they, and, and for some additional context, I, I won't call anyone out, but if sure, sure. No, absolutely. <laughs> many, many of the government contractors still kind of use very archaic, um, systems to, for their business development process and information tracking in those, like generating it, it, very archaic. And there's no, there's a huge opportunity there for anybody that wants to go in and start to really reinvigorate and disrupt. That. Um, I mean, it's changing all the time, but right, right, of course. So, that being said, it's it's a big gap to have to manually um, search through often thousands of digital artifacts to try to find what you're looking for when you're trying to put together a um, solution for a government government problem. So, what I like to tell people is that in when you're engaging with an LLM. I treat it the way I would treat engaging with a browser, <laughs> you know, like it's not anything you put into, uh, you know, a Google search or any search for that matter. Um, it's it's not. It's not private. I mean, and so I like to tell people, you know, OK, if you're if you're going to engage with an LLM, the, the best way to um, from a security perspective to explain the risk and have people have it kind of resonate, at least with the government contracting crowd. Um, that tends to be very risk averse is to say, hey, would you put that in a browser? And most of them, most of them kind of look at me like, oh, I didn't realize that. I thought this was, you know, totally safe, totally private and, um, you know, different from browsers. But really drawing that parallel, at least to this community of of users, um, was quite helpful. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, no, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you have to use um, something that people are familiar with, right? Create that associative heuristic there that says they already know this. I can connect it to that. And then they're like, oh, I understand it without getting into all the details about, well, I mean, it is called open source, you know, open AI for a reason. And it has disclaimers now. But, you know, for a while there, when it first launched, it's like, just throw everything in there, right? It's totally fine. They're not going to give you the message like they do now that if you put somebody's personal information and says, whoa, you know, you shouldn't do that. Um, but at the beginning that, that wasn't there. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and at the beginning is where there was the most demand to be like, how do we control our company information and our customer government information, um, in the context of this really fast evolving technology? Um, and so, uh, just being passionate about, you know, the government stakeholder and 
um, very passionate about emerging technology, I kind of stepped in and um, set up a few workshops to be able to guide people through not necessarily where it was at that point in time, but how to stay on top of it. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, speaking of being passionate about it, you know, what attracted you to like AI? I, I worked for a company that leveraged publicly and commercially available information for national security purposes. And um, for me, that was the most eye-opening to be able to see uh, the the difference that that widely available data can make in um, law enforcement investigations, in counterterrorism missions, and in um, missing cases of missing children. And so I realize the privacy implications of those technologies is, is, you know, its own separate thing. Um, and I've taken that, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been on the commercial side um, and having having leveraged a lot of that data and information in the public sector side of things. It was it was really interesting to see how it's used um, in the marketing. Uh, it, it's to see how sophisticated it is in the commercial sector as well. Um, yeah, no, that makes makes sense. It was to say, wow, you could do a lot with all this data. Like the insights you can pull from it are are incredible and just force multipliers for really important missions. Absolutely, absolutely, I, I love that. Um, I, I know we we spoke a little bit about you know government contractor risk averseness. Uh, but specifically on adopting this and you, you seeing it being utilized, how do you think it's maybe like revolutionizing the industry? I, I think every company is quickly scrambling to come up with an AI proposition or acquire an AI company uh, as soon as possible in the government contracting context. Uh, there, there's no it's it's been that way, I think, actually, for the last two years. There are a lot of compelling technologies being invested in by organizations like InQtel and uh, non-traditional government funding sources from like the Defense Innovation Unit and some other really, really interesting um, national security technology investment arms. But so I, I don't see that as necessarily a gap there. I, I think they're moving very fast for the government and getting around some historical uh, cha- historically challenging acquisition regulations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe you could um, jump into maybe a, a real world example of kind of a traditional process that's been improved by AI that you've seen or or built. Leveraging publicly and commercially available data is inherently controversial, and especially when the government is doing it. Um, I don't know why people get such ruff- ruffled feathers over the government using it, and yet they don't care that, you know, companies have that like the corporate surveillance thing doesn't bother your average person but um anyway so with with that in mind i will say the uh locating locating criminals when you can draw you can collect massive amounts of data with temporal parameters and geographic parameters to be able to discover what an on-the-ground situation is like at any given point. And so if you're looking at, um, if you want to look and see what's on what's happening 
on the other on the other side of the world, you can leverage in a sensitive area like a a border area between two countries at war. Um, you can leverage satellite imagery data. You can leverage RF data. You can leverage mobile device location data, even, um, and a number of other types of sources to be able to get an on the ground, potentially delayed, depending on the data source, but or and how much you're willing and able to pay for all that data. It's not necessarily going to be real time, but to get an understanding of what where high traffic areas are in in certain parts of the world. So um, another. That's that's a loose example, you know, talking about a border area, but there are um, activity-based intelligence research research projects ongoing on the Russian-Ukrainian border where they're trying to identify places where there is lots of traffic so they know, okay, there are likely not very many um, IEDs on the road, lots of people traveling through there. Um, you know, like certain kinds of insights that you can derive from just massive amounts of information that no human is or or basic, <laughs> you know, basic computational power is going to be able to extract such meaningful insights from. Um, another one would be similarly would be a border. Um, you're trying to monitor uh, cross-border activity to say, okay, what's what's going on? And, you know, you can identify... Leveraging this technology, you can actually identify um, tunnels, potentially smuggling. Uh, so I'm not saying there is a specific use case or or border on in mind, but just sharing, you know, that is that is a use case because there's so much. You get so much data from so many different sources. Like the the world is your oyster. There's no there's no limitation to the amount you can collect that provides that level of insight and then maritime data as well you can there are a lot of providers out there that have nailed <laughs> the ability to identify anomalous behavior um and and identify potential um sanction violations by certain companies and countries and so it's um it's a, it's a really really cool space ai has revolutionized yeah, yeah. I'd say, you know, before we had like big data processing and language learning models and things that are, you know, improving, you know, having the manual boots on the ground sitting there and just like looking at all the data, you're going to miss so much. It's just, I mean, human error, right? We, we can only process so much information that's coming in front of us. But then whenever you can train a model and then it's not going to get it right the first time, but you keep improving on those iterations the amount of data that can be processed in like a second is, I mean, we're living in the future right now. And it's, it's amazing how much has changed in just like the past 20 years. And now with AI becoming more open and available to like businesses and consumers, they're just, I think like 10 Xing the amount of things that we can do with, you know, these, these um, machine learning algorithms. Yeah. And there is, there is another, there's a particular stakeholder. I won't name the actual government customer, but they have um, they have engaged with a company that basically provides AI in a box. They go in, they collect and clean all of your data. They put people on site to make sure that they can oversee the implementation and they make it so easy to be able to extract insights from potentially decades 
of data that have been in all sorts of different forms. Um, a lot of companies have have done a really good job in in the government contracting space of taking existing data in all sorts of forms and and drawing insights from it and in a in a productized fashion, which is incredibly impressive to me. Do <laughs> um, you think if you like taking data from like night? classified systems and all of the crazy requirements around navigating that and something from like 1955 you know it's just like being able to make it all work together is is really something and usable across agencies absolutely and, and making it easy i think uh i'm not sure i haven't really shared this much but in the past life you know i was director of 911 uh for south texas and so working within different governmental entities the tools that we had were, I mean, you mentioned archaic. I mean, they were a little archaic, but they were also so hard to use. It's They were not, you know, easy, easy to just jump in and like, you know, click and drop. And this is, this is how you do it. It was difficult to get a lot of our, you know, processes and systems, you know, working, you know, in a streamlined fashion. So for an organization to come in and that's the, that's the opportunity, make it so simple for the government. Uh, because they're focusing or government contractors or entities make it so simple that you can jump in there and like a consumerized product and be like, I'm used to using Microsoft Word. I'm used to using Google. You know, I just drag and drop. It's easy. Making it that simple from a UI, UX experience is just by itself is revolutionary in there. And then layering on the actual like machine learning and neural networks and AI, you know, it's that that's incredible. Yeah. And things are a little bit crazy with open AI right now, obviously. Um, but, but I would say the next the next area of disruption in the government contracting and in the government community is going to be in the everyday use and really widespread enterprise use of AI by adopting something like Copilot. Whatever that looks like in the future, I know there's a limit or a minimum of 300 licenses at this point that you have to buy if you want to try it out right now. But it's with that, I mean, Microsoft is used so widely throughout the government contracting and government community that it's once that rolls out, I think people are really going to start, um, especially if there are on-prem solutions, that, offerings of it. It's it's going to start to put those, probably put some data businesses out of business. <laughs> but Sure, sure. But it, it's it's all moving us forward and making it, you know, more impactful, you know, the work that everybody's doing. So... That makes makes a lot of sense. Um, could you describe, and, and you kind of touched on this with this org, but there might be another one. Could you describe maybe a fascinating AI application that you've recently worked on? If, if you've ever put together or heard about putting together a proposal for uh, to win a government contract, you know it's probably a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty rough process. I spent years writing and managing proposals. Um, and And those are... That, that can be pretty tedious. I mean, sometimes you have like a thousand page proposal that has to go in and get produced and all that. So for me, the easiest application of that was to go to a company and say, okay, let's get your entire library of proposals. Let's categorize them and, and let's make everything searchable by what was technically acceptable, what was, you know, and integrate feedback from uh, from the government cu- customers, you know, when possible, they don't always provide it. Um, but take all of that information because many of these people have these massive libraries of 
of proposal and pricing content that they've never actually derived any insights outside of manually experiencing it and looking and adding their own kind of like flawed human um, intuition to it, right? And so being able to say like, hey, it looks like, you know, the last 10 winning proposals for this particular government customer had all of these things in common or looks like the ones that we lost had all of these things in common and they were missing all of the things that were in the wind. Like being able to extract very quickly insights, like leveraging on-prem data is is incredible. And like you, you can do that in a safe way and it's a two to three month consulting project tops. And it's uh, like, it, it, I think, I think people don't realize that you can do it in a safe and secure way and that there are a million consultants out there that do that and do it well. Um, and it's it's really accessible for the small mid-sized business market. Absolutely. that That's definitely revolutionary um, because you try to bring in, and I've had proposals that I've looked at, you know, back, back in the day, right? Um, where the people working with them are following a process that in their minds, this, this kind of always worked. You know, I think if I put it this way and I phrase it this way, you know, that, that, that's worked, you know, before. And then they are always surprised when, you know, new regulations or rules or anything have been published that changes the RFP requirements, which impact the response. And you have to reject it and say, sorry, you needed to follow this process or this is like new. And they're like, um, I've always done it this way. I thought this was right. Okay, back to the drawing board, which they've spent months or I mean, a good amount of time working on. Yeah, it's true. And they're, I mean, yeah. And I, I, I advocate for the on-prem because of the security concern. I'm over. I'm probably more risk averse than most people. I feel like because of my experience, you're, you're a privacy expert, so that makes sense. There are companies out there that are creating really compelling technologies for the government contracting proposal community by saying like, hey, upload an RFP and we'll spit out a draft for you. And then, oh, by the way, we'll integrate like, you know, we'll create your library and integrate insights from those. They're they're not very sophisticated at this point because they're not customized. Like they're not very customized. Whereas if you have like at this point, if you hire a consultant, you're going to for an on-prem, you're going to get a safer and, and better and better product and outcome. But, um, but the the stuff that's coming out on the on the software as a subscription service for this community is still compelling and and worth following and looking at. Yeah, well, what do you think were some of the challenges in bringing that type of application to life? Confidential but unclassified data. So when you're when you're dealing with when you're layering different pieces of information into one document you know, those individual pieces of information could be unclassified. But when you start to layer all those things together, you you approach challenging territory um, and, and potentially violating um, security policies. And so I think having a human in the loop to be able to monitor that and make sure that nothing, if you're, I'm, I'm saying if you're using an, a cloud um, product, like having having a human in the loop to determine like what what prompts go in, what, you know, what documents get uploaded. I think that's the biggest, that's the biggest barrier um, <laughs> for success in that context, in my opinion. And that could change tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> and, and again, I consider myself a little more risk averse, I think, than 
any other sales and marketing professional you'll probably ever meet. (laughs) But yeah. Speaking of like risk averse, I think this takes us to a core piece of your expertise and that's ethical considerations, you know, behind AI. You know, what, what would you say are some of those considerations that are essential in AI related work? Um, so in the national security context, the, the most hotly debated one is, is what happens when we collect information on us persons, you know, and that, and, and violating the privacy of, of American citizens abroad in the context of the uh, legislation that's being baited right now. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and, and what to do with that. And I, I, my response to that is, I mean, this, this technology is so valuable that as long as it's available to everyone, including our adversaries and corporations, I mean, it, it should absolutely be available to the government. And from what I've seen, a lot of the government folks take an enormous amount of responsibility when they do encounter that. And there are very, depending on the agency, there are very specific guidelines and, and standard operating procedures for when you do encounter data on a U.S. citizen overseas or something. And so I think I think that there's no, like th- there is no, there will always be a human in the loop for that reason because you have to be careful. But I would argue that, <laughs> that we should, a lot, a lot of folks are calling on the government to stop collecting the data, period. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If we do that, <laughs> can we, can we maybe have it, make it so that China can't? get it on American citizens and on make it so that, you know, corporations can't use it to target and sell and sell to uh, American citizens. So it's, it's a really, um, I would say that's, that's the, a big ethical consideration is making sure that there's a human in the loop to be able to adhere to standard operating procedures um, to respect privacy of, 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 you know, of, of all people. It doesn't matter. American citizen, European or whatever. Right. Um, and so that, that would be my biggest, um, that would be my biggest area that I, I think the most about because, um, I do, I do take privacy very seriously, but, um, I, I also think that as long as everyone else can access it, like there's no reason the government shouldn't be able to as well. Sure. You touched on a a lot of very, very hot points there, uh, that I don't know if we'll, we'll dive down into some of those rabbit holes. But I think it's I think you 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 also brought up some really, really important parts that I think are applicable to the larger um, you know, AI community as a whole. And that's, you know, we can't a hundred percent rely on this data to be accurate. I mean, it's it's still early and it's in its infancy. And even as it evolves, there has to be a human aspect built into it. I mean, you look at it, and I know you talked about Microsoft's copilot. So I mean that that's a, a good term to use here. You can look at these tools as a co-pilot, a way to like 10x your your efforts, but you have to validate the information. You have to make sure that it it doesn't, you know, get delusional visions on like some of the responses. I mean, we all know that early ChatGPT and other similar, you know, language learning models would um, kind of make up responses. You know, they they like I, I forgot the exact term. There's there's a word that's used that I don't know if hallucinating yes it's like uh, yeah hallucinating on their responses 
And so, I mean, that's something to seriously be, you have to be considered. Yeah. And I think on the development of those tools, I remember I gave, I gave a workshop to one customer and I was demonstrating like, okay, hey, and by the way, like at the time, ChatGPT didn't have any sort of trail of or citations of where they, you know, where they got their information. But Bard at the time did. And, you know, it goes back and forth. I feel like it changes all the time. And you you have all of these different tools that offer um, attribution to the results. And uh, at the time, I was like, oh, and here's, here's Bard. And they do it. And it was within the 24 hours between me prepping for this workshop and then me giving it. It, there were no longer any any uh, citations. And I was like, well, looks like they changed that. Let's go to a different one that does it, you know? And it was, oh, that was fast. <laughs> I, that's something that I've seen adopted in an on-prem capacity is is done really well um, to say, okay, and here's, you know, here's where we got that information and how we got it. And it's pretty easy to um, to understand from on, on a dashboard, right? So, right. Uh, a little bit back to the ethical considerations. Uh, is there a specific ethical dilemma that you'd be open to kind of like sharing that you've kind of gone through? The bias that those tools come with inherently based on what goes in, it's it's really hard to know at this point for me in the context of these cases I've dealt with what the implications for bias are going to be. Um, and I haven't personally struggled with a situation where, um, there hasn't been enough human control to be able to moderate a dangerous decision being made. And so I can't, um, so yeah, I, I, I obviously if, you know, we were dropping bombs based on AI developed intelligence, that would be kind of terrifying, but I mean, don't quote me and I'm not, you know, that's not my area of expertise by any stretch of the imagination, but I think there's a lot more to it. Um, that's where I would start to be like, okay, that's kind of scary. Definitely, definitely. Um, and hopefully there's always that human aspect built into it to make sure that, you know, that's that's handled appropriately and goes all through the proper, you know, uh, SOPs. Good job, Mike, for getting that co-pilot name. <laughs> Maybe that's why they're so connected and invested in OpenAI, right? Uh, 45, what is it? 49% ownership in it. So it's great. Um, in regards to innovation and limitations, uh, you know, we talked about a few companies and the innovations that it's making in, in your space. Uh, would you say that there's any groundbreaking yet underutilized AI technology in the government contracting field? I would say in bids and proposals, yes. That's like, that's absolutely the biggest gap just operationally that could save government contractors the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time. That's point blank. And I mean, that's my area of, of expertise. Um, that's, that's something that I see as, as a huge opportunity outside of that. Um, I, I do, I'm probably not the best to answer outside of that when, in terms of adopting AI technology in, in the context of solving, um, complex problems because what I've seen so far has been really impressive and advanced. And I'm by, I am not a data scientist. Where would you say that AI maybe falls short in your field and how, how could they overcome those limitations? As far as security goes, government, U.S. government contractors are a target for 
cybercrime for you know all all sorts of attacks and so i i can understand the slow you know the hesitation the hesitation to adopt new technology quickly because of that but in the context of ai and you know the widespread adoption of it of inevitably all of their employees or many of their employees i think it's it's there needs to be an industry wide cultural shift to figure out how how to embrace it and how to you know govern around the existence of this technology and the inevitable use of it and prevent abuse of it yeah yeah absolutely um if we if we look out to the future now right so we're looking at innovations and limitations right now but we want to look into the future what emerging trends are you most excited about I am most excited about the prospect of having a co-pilot on like, you know, on my machine or on my device, even my phone to say, like, I can quickly ask a question and it'll take my it'll take insights from my information. I mean, yes, I, I have that currently in a hodgepodge kind of manner. But like once that becomes very streamlined and accessible, I that's just going to change everything because you're not just asking the internet for questions. You're saying, hey, from this library of, you know, vetted data, I want instant insights. And so I know that that exists, uh, and it's, but it's very expensive. Once it becomes something that you can pay $30 a month for, I think that's going to be crazy. It exists today, and it's it does a great job, but it is expensive. It's not $30 a month. <laughs> uh, how do you see the relationship between AI and human expertise uh, evolving. Yeah, I think the term co-pilot sums it up. Like it's it's going to be, you're always, I, I see it as, you know, pe- people are nervous, professors and academics are nervous about, you know, students using it to cheat. But at the same time, as soon as Spellcheck came out, we had the same conversations whenever that was where, oh, you know, the students are never going to learn how to spell. <laughs> And guess what? Maybe that was partially true. Uh, <laughs> um, but like, I, I see a similar parallel in in those in those two things, and it's it's not going anywhere. And figuring out how to um, how do you like leverage it to empower those students potentially that they're worried about, you know, overusing it. And and I think the the emergence of the internet was another huge thing. I mean, it's it's. It's not uh, it's not going anywhere and it's only going to grow. And so figuring out how to stay safe on it and benefit from it is critical. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And we, we've seen those changes over time. Right. It's always this new technology pops in and then, oh, no, we're going to forget how to do it this way or that's going to change everything for the negative. And, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to like learn anything anymore. Uh, your example of students, I think, is, is on point. I remember, you know, back in college, going to the library, uh, even though, we, you know, we have the Internet, right? But you go to the library because you only have certain resources there in those books to respond to the essay that you're working on. So you sit there all night and you have, you know, 30 books on this huge table and you're flipping through. Oh, OK, that's a reference I can use. That's useful here. That's useful here. And sure, it's a good learning experience to, you know, use the library search function and the Rolodex index and go find the book and sit there and spend hours sifting through to find what's helpful. But 
if you can expedite all of that and you have all those resources, you know, with an AI that you could just type in, hey, I'm looking for this and you give me some of the sources, you're still learning the information. You're just reducing the, the, the time that you're spending hunting for that one paragraph. Which maybe makes you a little less invested to retain the information. Because if you go through like eight hours of work trying to, to learn something and then that you can now learn in 15 minutes, you're probably going to be <laughs> less less motivated to keep it. Because if I spend that much time learning something, I'm like, oh, I better not forget this ever. It's going in that part of my brain that like <laughs> it's not going anywhere. Um, Hopefully. If, if, if you weren't just writing the night before, um, I'm not I'm not saying I was. For the essay that's due in a couple hours, you know, and you're not going to remember it after. But, you know, uh, never did that. Never did that in my life. Oh, man. Let's jump into just like personal insights and maybe like some lessons. So what's a lesson you've learned in your career that, you know, you wish you knew earlier? Probably the biggest thing. It's it's sort of a mantra that I I use is, is, you know, you you are tougher than you think you are. Like you can do more than you think you can. And and. And having that, reminding myself of that on a regular basis, I I wish I had learned to do that long ago. Um, and I wish that I knew that I was tougher than I thought I was a long time ago. Um, I I would say that that that's probably the biggest. It's it's very broad, and I think you can apply it to anything. But I um when when I'm faced with really difficult challenges, it that that's that's what helps me the most. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I I love that, and I guess it's the the decisions that we make during these trying times that build our characters, right? And we get stronger from them. I mean, maybe not at that moment, uh, maybe we fail in that moment, but you do learn from them, and ideally not repeat them. And you know, if it if it doesn't kill you, I think that's my dad said that, which is probably like taken from a lot of other people too. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, right? Yeah, everybody's heard that, so. Hopefully life isn't at risk here, but you are, you know, moving on and you, you can, you know, grow from it. So I love that mantra. Yeah. I also think that as a salesperson, I've always believed that if you're selling technology, you should be able to deeply understand the product and and speak to it and pitch it and and help implement it and be a part of those processes so you know what you're selling. I, I think that that is a kind of... a a large gap in in what I've seen in the sales and marketing spaces. So, absolutely. So, if we if we jump into kind of like AI related learnings, and I know that you have uh, a vast knowledge uh, linked to like privacy and security. For those listeners on here, are there any recommendations on maybe industry? You know, journals, books, websites that you would recommend that people check out? I like to stay on top of what's coming out. And I don't make my security determination based on this yet. But there is a website and newsletter called There's an AI for that dot com. I'm sure you. Um, <laughs> and maybe our listeners have already heard of it. I like seeing capabilities that come out that have you know, thousands of, of reviews on them. So I feel like, okay, this many people are using it. I can read, I can go through and extract insights from some of those, um, some of those reviews and say, okay, do I want to try this? Is it, is it, you know, um, what's, which, what's the back end of it and how is it created and, and who's behind it? Um, you know, I, there, there are a lot of companies out there that have business record data so they can tell you, um, if there's a company behind 
a specific AI capability that you as a consumer are interested in, you can go and, and say, oh, is this, where is this entity based out of? And sometimes it'll be like Iranian entity. And in that case, you may not want to use it. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I think most, I think your average person doesn't really think about those, uh, <laughs> think about those things. But um, I, I like to know who's, who I'm giving my data to, even if I am careful in my, in my prompts and in my use of it. Well, and that's why on the enterprise side, most companies go through like SOC 2 compliance. They, they show they've gone through all of the, you know, proper channels that they're housing the data in, you know, secure methods that they've actually spent the time to train all of their staff on specifically what phishing and hacking and all these things look like and how to, you know, handle that so that it doesn't compromise uh, the the data of our, you know, uh, customers. This is a question that I like to ask everybody and it, it can come in different ways. You know, some people are building a new business and they have a moonshot, you know, idea for there. Others maybe within their current efforts have like a moonshot project that they're, they're working on. And so they describe some of the things that they're, they're building there. If, if I asked you, you know, Hillary, what's your moonshot AI project for the future. What would that what would that be? Moonshot project. I know there are some nonprofits and companies working on this, but building something that informs consumers and, and just your average person who has their data and what it's being used for and how much money these companies are making off of your data. I think that ha- building out some kind of like data efficacy platform to inform individual users would be incredible. I think we would see very positive change. And I mean, I I don't know realistically if, if that will happen given, you know, the fact that it's a multi-billion dollar industry. But I love the idea of of being able to articulate the, you know, the, the supply chain of, of my individual data to say like, okay, I went on this website, they took these necessary cookies where who, you know, what, what's being used, like which advertisers were able to take that and, and try to target me and what information were they give. So I, you know, that would be pretty cool. Yeah. That would bring so much transparency to the efforts and the behind the scenes uh, work that's, that's going on. I know, there, there are, you know, platforms, search engines like DuckDuckGo that have launched to keep your information private so that you do have that true, like anonymous searching, you know, browsing interaction. From a marketer's standpoint, we're like, oh, oh no, oh no, because now we can't give you that targeted ad that we wanted to show you. But being able to opt in or opt out about it and being conscious about where your information is going is, I, I think that one of the next steps in just our, our digital evolution and something that if there was a company that like brought that to the forefront, I mean, definitely a lot of challenges in getting that all connected, but it, it could be amazing. Uh, and it would solve a lot of the pain points of people who say, stop stealing my data. I don't know where my data is. And this gives you that, that tracker, you know? Yeah. Or you see that your data has been breached by a website that you never consented to, you never gave it to. And you like, what? Like, well, thanks. Thanks a lot. You know, and then to be able to like backtrack and see like, okay, where did they get that? When did they get it? And, and how? And I think 
I think that would just be such a cool thing to illuminate for all users. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure we have all received that email from like LifeLock or a credit company or something saying, hey, your email and password is accessible on the dark web. It's like, oh, which one? Okay, that one in general. How? You know, like, how did that happen? And that's it. That's that's all the information that you get. It's like, great. So I guess I just changed my password, which hopefully you've been doing on a regular basis anyways. But having something to be able to like track it, uh, that also brings up a lot of like accountability, right? For the the companies that are out there protecting us and taking our data. It's like, where was the leaky funnel? And I think that could all, I mean, that would make us all better on the, the business side is we can track this better. We're, we're being held accountable. So we hold ourselves to even higher standards, which I think is phenomenal. Yeah. And marketers would innovate around it. Like, yes, there would be some pain points initially, but that technology would would innovate quickly and find a way to, I think, more ethically target advertisements. Well, absolutely. I mean, there's all these recent like cookie changes, you know, on like Facebook tracking on like uh, on the Google side, uh, you know, Google ads network has like reduced what you can actually see. So with with all these changes that have happened, there's still ways for us to market to those individuals and bring them the right thing at the right time. Because if you take the Netflix experience, you want that personalization to some extent. So people will still opt in on certain things that they want because they want that information. I think it just brings more transparency and say, only show me what I really want to see and make it relevant. Uh, and that just makes us have to be better on the marketing side. Yeah, I agree. hundred percent. Um, it's been a pleasure having you here, Hillary. Um, how can our listeners follow your work? LinkedIn is the only social platform that I'm active on. Um, but yes, LinkedIn and 505updates.com is our podcast that we put out every day at 5.05 p.m. to say, hey, here's what's going on in the cybersecurity and open source space. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I have learned a lot in this conversation. Uh, I have like a lot of notes right here, uh, you know, sheets and sheets of notes that I've taken, and I'll be sharing those in the show notes uh, once this actually goes live. But I, I really appreciate, you know, you taking the time to be on AI Unboxed and um, looking forward to, you know, getting this out into the wild. And yeah, thank you so much again. Thank you so much for having me. You've just listened to AI Unboxed. To hear more stories about the future of AI, subscribe to AI Unboxed on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm Andrew Monier. Until next time.